0: Alex Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Frank Ling, and this is Berkeley Grox.
1: That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee.
0: Coming up on today's show, dog DNA and microRNA. Also joining us is Professor June Dreyer to talk about geopolitical strategy in East Asia. So stay tuned for all this,
1: plus the Rocketron 5000,
0: and the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here
1: on the Berkeley Grox
0: Science Show. Show. Frank Ling.
1: And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank?
0: Trying to stay awake,
1: actually. Well, you know, it's tough when the holiday season comes around, and especially Christmas is a few days off. Yeah. I'm sure you're running ragged.
0: All that shopping, I guess. <laughs> Couldn't well, get enough iPods this year.
1: <laughs> hopefully, it'll be uh, over soon, and we can all enjoy our holidays.
0: Yes. Are you gonna get a dog this Christmas? You know,
1: I've always wanted an animal, but I'm allergic to them, so how about yourself?
0: Goldfish are cool, but they don't really talk to you or anything. <laughs> They're not
1: very furry and pettable. They're kind of wet too. Yeah, I've tried to pet them and they usually just die.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, it turns out now it's actually pretty easy to get DNA tests for your uh, pets, especially dogs. Really? Yes, even for 65 bucks, you can find out uh, the pedigree of, of your dog and any uh, predisposition to genetic diseases. And in fact, this current technique actually lets you validate up to 155 breeds. So one of the interesting statistics is that before they implemented this, uh, 13% of puppies had the wrong parents listed for the pedigrees. Now they've sort of wheeled it down to about 4%. So uh, this is available uh, pretty much anywhere right now. It's approved by the American Kennel Club. Nice article in the Los Angeles Times.
1: All right, well, moving from dogs to slime.
0: Is there a paternity suit for slime as well?
1: I'm not sure if you can actually train algae to be nice pets as much as dogs can be.
0: Kind of wild and gets all (laughs) over the place.
1: But one of the interesting features that researchers are now discovering is that they're using micro-RNAs.
0: Are they like little circular structures of RNA that coat and coat for them?
1: Right, exactly. They're basically short sequences of DNA, about two dozen nucleotides or so, and they're involved in actually some interesting regulatory processes for the DNA in the organism. And so it wasn't thought that before that they'd actually be involved in simpler organisms like these algae. Uh-huh. But now Qi, a molecular biologist at the National Institutes of Biological Sciences in Beijing, has shown that these microRNAs also exist in simple organisms like algae.
0: Wow. So does this lend some support to this theory that life evolved from an RNA-based system?
1: It's certainly, if you can see these microRNAs at a very simple organism, that right. certainly wouldn't support it. Uh-huh. RNA, not just for big evolved animals. <laughs> Very fascinating work published in a recent edition of *Genes and Development*.
0: And that's all for our look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week. This is Berkeley Grox. You're listening to here on ninety point seven FM. In a few moments, Professor June Dreyer joins us to talk about geopolitical developments in East Asia. So stay tuned. doctor Burke Berger-Grox, well, U.S.-China relations are arguably the most important relation between any two countries in the world. It's one between the strongest and the largest militaries, the largest economy, and the fastest growing one. And joining us today to talk about this fascinating and yet potentially um, complicating and dangerous relationship uh, is Professor June Dreyer from the University of Miami in Coral Gables, Florida. She was a commissioner of the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review and is also the co-author and editor of numerous books. Professor Dreyer, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: My pleasure to be here.
0: First of all, I'm just curious, how did you become interested in East Asian affairs and um, how has your experience uh, influenced your understanding about the uh, dynamics in that region?
2: I can't really explain. I I just, uh, as a child, I was just very, very interested in China. I grew up in in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, I always enjoyed trips to Chinatown and looking in the windows and wondering what the strange characters said. And in the end, I decided to study Chinese and see if I could find out for myself what the strange characters said. And it's never been boring.
0: And, of course, you know, underpinning, all of this right now, the U.S.-China relationship is the one-China policy. Um, Could you just give us a brief background on this uh, framework that's been in place since 1972?
2: Well, it's a very peculiar framework. And uh, uh, the uh, idea is that Henry Kissinger very much wanted to make the People's Republic of China into an ally of the United States so that they could both withstand what seemed to be a very menacing Soviet Union. And there was the problem that the United States recognized the Republic of China on Taiwan, headed by Chiang Kai-shek and his Guamendang, his Chinese nationalist government, as the government of China. So uh, what uh, Kissinger tried to do in the Shanghai Communiqué of 1972 is finesse that. And the way he did it was by a phrase that said all Chinese on both sides of the Taiwan Strait agree that there is but one China. The United States does not uh, contest this. And so this was a very peculiar thing because I think Kissinger, uh, or at least his subordinates, must have been well aware that there are a large number of people on Taiwan who do not consider themselves Chinese and uh, therefore do not think that Taiwan belongs to China. But in any case, we established the notion that there was just one China, and uh, that uh, that has been causing us problems ever since, because as any fool can see, there are two sovereign states, one on each side of the Taiwan Strait, and we don't have to quibble about their names to realize that they're two separate entities.
0: And so there's this policy of the status quo in which Neither side of the Taiwan Strait will make any unilateral changes. But there's some concerns that the Chinese side have been redefining what can or cannot be the status quo. Um, could you explain to us what exactly is uh, going on?
2: Yeah, well, I don't agree that there has ever been a status quo. I think it's been constantly in flux. And uh, what the United States finally had to do about four years ago is say, we will define the status quo. But eat that doesn't prevent either side from making changes in the status quo, and uh, there really isn't anything the United States can do about it. So uh, far from being the United States taking advantage of this, it puts the United States in a very bad position because the Taiwan Relations Act gives the United States some measure of responsibility for the for the defense of Taiwan should China invade. And, of course, it doesn't work the other way, because no one imagines that Taiwan is going to invade China. So this puts the United States in a difficult position. And so what they're essentially saying to Taiwan is don't rock the boat. And occasionally the United States says the same thing to China. But when China rocks the boat, the United States doesn't do anything except to say occasionally, well, you shouldn't do that. And you saw a perfect example of that. Uh, two, three years ago when China passed the anti-secession law.
0: You know, among uh, certain segments of policymakers, there's this feeling that if we engage in China, they'll become more democratic, and as a result, they'll become a responsible stakeholder and uh, won't threaten its neighbors. Uh, Do you agree with that?
2: No, I think it's absurd. Uh, It was based on hope rather than knowledge or certainty and China has certainly not become any more liberal. China, in fact, was more liberal in April 1989 than it has been at any point since the Tiananmen demonstrations, and it shows no signs of becoming more liberal. Uh, It uh, has arrested journalists. It is making the press more restrictive rather than less. And... uh, Uh, The fact that, uh, I mean, one must admit that that people are freer in China nowadays to complain to each other and their friends about what they don't like about the government, but they are certainly not uh, able to criticize their government in public without repercussions. And people have been arrested and imprisoned for really, really, really minor kinds of things like publishing people's email addresses. Uh, That's not my idea of moving toward democracy.
0: And you know, when you look back into history and of course today's uh, current developments, what do you think are China's intentions?
2: I think China's intention is to become the strongest power in the world. And they spend so much time denying it that you can't help feeling suspicious about it.
0: Well, some people would argue the US also has the same intentions.
2: We don't have intentions. We are the strongest power in the world. But we are a democracy.
0: And so with regards to Taiwan, you know what exactly are um the us's interests uh, strategic and otherwise in uh, maintaining uh the status quo or, i mean the uh what i'm trying to say is what kind of developments should the us be encouraging
2: i don't see that we have any strategic advantage in maintaining the status quo our strategic advantage in the long run is to have taiwan accepted as an independent state But for the short run, it would cause a lot of disruption. Now, our strategic interest in keeping the situation approximately what it is, is that if we allowed Taiwan to be forcibly unified with China, there would be enormous repercussions to our treaty system because none of our allies would ever trust any of our guarantees again, and we know it. Uh, The other real concern for us is that China's territorial waters would be expanded to the area beyond Taiwan, and that would mean encroaching very closely on Japanese waters, which would make the Japanese, our ally, very, very nervous. And it would also make the Philippines, whose waters are very, very close to Taiwan, nervous as well. And the right of free passage of ships would be subject to the whim of the People's Liberation Army. And we also know that China is an extremely corrupt country. Uh, And often what the People's Liberation Army, what units of them are doing, amounts to really piracy. And the central government may not even know about it, but it certainly doesn't do anything about it.
0: Um, So currently the the Department of State has this policy of strategic ambiguity, and a few years ago there was um, some movement towards strategic clarity. Uh, What do you think is the best policy?
2: I think the best policy is that the United States should say, as it has actually on several occasions, that any move to forcibly unite Taiwan and China will be met with United States resistance.
0: And I recently read an interview with Alice at, um, I don't remember the institution, but he said that China may try to take over Taiwan and fail the first time, but they're they're so determined that they may come back uh, time and time again until they succeed. And the example they cite is that back in the Ming Dynasty, or the end of the Ming Dynasty when uh, Koxinga was in Taiwan, the Qing came at least, 12 times until they succeed in taking it over. Do you believe the Chinese have that same determination?
2: Well, Koxinga was dead by the time that the Ming managed to conquer China, I mean Taiwan. Uh, that was his grandson who was nominally in charge. And what had happened at the time, and this may be instructive for today's Taiwan politics, is that Koxinga's heirs were quarreling strongly among themselves and so that may be a a word of caution to the KMT and the DPP to get their act together and cooperate. But Taiwan essentially fell to the Ming forces uh, because the Taiwanese, the, the government of Taiwan at the time was disunited and quarreling with each other.
0: And a few months ago, the Asia Society in New York sponsored an Intelligence Squared roundtable in which they discussed the rise of China's power. Um one of the discussants, Jay Stapleton Roy, said that there was nothing to be concerned because America's military would always be ahead of China's. An do you agree with that?
2: No. Uh I don't. I think China's military is growing faster. And I think that the that Jay Stapleton Roy is saying that uh, the United States military is stronger, which it is at the moment. But we are involved. The United States is involved globally. And on any given day, our power assets in the East Asia-Pacific area can be very, very thin. And that is something to worry about. The other thing, of course, is that we frequently don't know what the Chinese possess or what they're doing. We were shocked in January of 2007 when the Chinese carried out that successful ASAT test. We didn't think they had that capability. We thought they were five, six, seven years away. So Stapleton Roy is an ambassador. He does not know the military equation very well, and he is repeating uh, the don't worry, can't of the State Department.
0: Another example that the pro-China forces have a conclusion that Hong Kong is prospering today and that Beijing has more or less let them run its affairs, and so they seem to imply that Beijing would give Taiwan the same degree of autonomy if they would unify. Is that something that can be guaranteed?
2: Hong Kong does not have much autonomy, and that has been shown in several different court cases where Beijing has intervened. Beijing has also intervened in the political process. And uh, in the criminal process, it uh, apprehended subjects in, uh, in the mainland who were Hong Kong residents, tried them, and executed them. Uh, this, and the Hong Kong courts did not protest. So people who don't look closely can think that Hong Kong has a good deal when in fact it doesn't. There have been massive demonstrations, peaceful ones, by Hong Kong citizens asking for universal suffrage, and they've been told, no, they can't have it. So I think that, uh, of course, there cannot be any guarantee that uh, um, Taiwan would get the same, even the same not very good treatment that Hong Kong has. The difference is that in Hong Kong, the Chinese government has bought off the ruling class. They have allowed the tycoons to keep on making lots of money, And uh, the tycoons are are happy, and the press self-censors to a large extent in Hong Kong. It doesn't complain, even though it should. And uh, since people are reasonably prosperous at the moment, it may not last, uh, they are saying we need China, so we better not make any trouble or any fuss.
0: Okay, uh, switching gears a little bit, and this concerns the media, um, so many people in the U.S., don't feel a real connection to China, in spite of all the Chinese goods that we buy. Um, you know, what do you, can you, what do you think the press should do to better inform uh, America on how China is growing and what that means for the U.S.?
2: I would say the press has done far too good a job to destroy to uh, portray how China is growing. They have portrayed it as an invincible behemoth, just growing, 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 and a, and a juggernaut, and they really don't address the problems to any extent in the Chinese economy, which are huge. Now, I will say they have covered this food, tainted food scandal and the uh, lead-coated toys and things like that. So that could contribute to getting a somewhat more realistic picture of what's going on in China.
0: And so what are some of the exciting developments occurring today? Um, you know, what, what are you optimistic about? And at the same time, uh, what are you pessimistic about?
2: Uh, in China?
0: Uh yeah, in um US China relations or um Taiwan's role in all of this.
2: Well, US Taiwan uh relations have seemed to improve from two years ago when President Bush gratuitously, in my opinion, criticized President Chun tui Uh so things have been going along on a fairly even uh basis, which of course is is good. I was pleased to hear that the House of Representatives passed a bill the other day that said that the that China, Taiwan's officials could visit the United States because I consider it just incredibly unfair that they have been barred from doing so uh, in, in in previous years. So that's good. I just hope it passes the Senate. Now, with regard to China, uh, we have not had any major unpleasant incidents such as the time that the U.S. reconnaissance plane had a a confrontation with a Chinese fighter plane. The problem is, of course, that the potential for such things always exists. So I think we are not out of the woods there. We are still very annoyed with China over the trade deficit. And part of that is the Chinese fault. But I think also part of it, the United States is really not doing its part. Our educational system, apart from a a few elite universities, is a travesty. Our high schools seem to be more interested in teaching, getting along with each other and playing sports than learning math and science and so on. So I think that one way that the United States could compete with China effectively is to get its own act together. We really have to rethink who we are, what we want to manufacture, and how we train our young people. And we're just not doing a very good job of that recently.
0: What about this idea of soft power? Uh, China as well as the U.S. have tried to court allies by investing in their infrastructure. Um, does that really
2: work? Not necessarily. The Chinese are also making themselves a lot of enemies in Latin America because they, what they do is they extract raw materials And Latin American countries don't want to be perpetually suppliers of raw materials to either the United States or China or the European Union. They want manufacturing industries of their own. The Chinese factory owners have been less than good employers from the Latin American's point of view. They pay very low wages. They promise things that don't appear to the workers, uh, that sort of thing. They also have been Doing in the opinion of many Latin American countries and also very many African countries, they've been doing things that are very bad for the environment. So China apparently is—I mean, it's—it's it's certainly not invading the the Latin American economy. And Latin American countries are happy to have some leverage from the traditional mother countries like Spain and Portugal and the Gringo Americans, but they're not necessarily going to love the Chinese as a result. They also find that contrary to China's protestations, oh, we never get involved in, in uh, the politics, of the domestic politics of the country we're in, that in fact the Chinese do get involved in domestic politics of the country they're in.
0: Finally, um, this is more addressed towards the Taiwanese community. Um, what advice do you have for a uh Americans and Taiwanese who are really concerned about these issues, how should we interact with our decision makers to uh, inform them of what 's going on?
2: Well, to begin with, I think that the uh, both parties have had people in them that are very, very inconsistent. They make inconsistent statements, so on the one hand, you have Frank Schea of the GPP saying essentially that he 's in favor of the status quo and then you have the uh, Premier Yu, who says that he wants to pursue the agenda of the normal country, and this actually confuses a lot of Americans. And then you have Ma ying who says he's going to the Kuomintang candidate, who says he's going to improve cross-strait relations, but he doesn't say how. And so I think, unfortunately, the image of Taiwan in most Americans' eyes is of warring factions in the Legislative Yuan and who can't decide what they want, and who think the United States should be responsible for their defense but don't want to spend any money on their own defense. And I think those issues have to be sorted out. And that the major political parties, for the good of Taiwan, have to get together on some common foreign policy so Americans know what they want. And another thing is that they've got to be able to convince the United States that they're very serious about their own defense and they're not expecting Americans to defend them when they're going to go somewhere else, like Los Angeles.
0: Great. Uh, Professor Dreyer, I really want to thank you for your time. Uh, Are there any last words you'd like to add about um, these issues or uh, yourself?
2: Uh, No, I would just like to urge the political parties in Taiwan to at least get together in a consensus so that they don't prevent present an image of diametrically warring factions to the rest of the world. It's really bad for the national image. Okay, thank you for allowing me to program. And
0: we were just talking to Doctor June Dwyer, professor of political science at the University of Miami. And Tokyo Q is the answer to last week's uh, question of the week. Uh, what's uh, glycosylation? Glycosylation is the process uh, by which a uh, sugar molecule is attached to the protein.
1: Oh, right. It's not a really great a uh, picric acid. You're know not going to be all great if you use it and it blows up on you. Well, what's it used for and why is it all great? If you know, think you know, email us at grokseroatmen.com. You're not going to win anything, but you just might feel a little explosive.
0: And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox.
1: Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology.
0: If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at, at com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank
1: Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.